Some of us make our living playing trumpet, while others do more talking than actual playing. No matter our background or ability, we're all fascinated with this piece of plumbing that has earned its place in the pantheon of musical legend, for better or for worse. My name is James Newcomb, and I'm glad you're here. So let's get on with the show. Welcome to my little show, everybody. I'm glad you're here. I am James Newcomb coming into your earballs. We are honored to bring on to the show Mr. Chuck Copenace. If you're listening to this, you can spell that C-O-P-E-N-A-C-E, Chuck Copenace, and we can find him on the web at chuckcopenace.com. He's a great trumpet player in Winnipeg, Manitoba, and we were just chatting a little bit right before hitting record, and we have some common bond. I grew up in Minnesota, and Chuck grew up in Ontario, western part of Ontario, and now he lives in Winnipeg, which is in Manitoba, a couple of hours away from his hometown, and I'm just thrilled to have you on the show, man. Great to be with you. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. I've already introduced you as a trumpet player, as am I, so we already we have two things in common already, growing up in the same area, and we play trumpet, so how about that? How is it that you got interested in trumpet in the first place? For me, it was in grade seven when we're, that was the first time I, other than the recorder, I think in grade school, which I don't know, might've made a good weapon. I don't remember anything <laughs> else about it, but in grade seven, we all had to choose an instrument. Like everybody had to do art and music. And, uh, and I just remember the hustle to choose something. I don't remember or being particularly excited about music, actually both art and music, I just thought, I was just like, okay, I just got to get through these things. And I think that's how I thought about all of school. <laughs> Basically, it was just like, all right, let's do what I got to do and get through. What was your priorities at that time? These, I think my priorities were probably pretty similar to a lot of kids, but it's just basically like I wanted to swim. I wanted to play. I wanted to go in the bush and climb around. I wanted to just be free. And I didn't think school was a, school wasn't a very free place for me to be. And so, yeah, I guess I was never, I never really liked school. Like, I know there were a lot of kids that actually enjoyed it. And right, I guess I wasn't those, one of those kids. But uh, yeah, so they made you grab, they made you choose an instrument. And I initially chose the flute. I remember because my two older sisters played flute and were pretty good at it. And I figured, okay, this will be easy. I'll just get the flute. I'll get my sisters to show me how to play it and, and everything will be great. And I remember I took the flute home and I just started just trying to make, do the first, you know, I think it might've been Mary had a little lamb or something like that. Like the little tunes that you have and all the buttons and the buttoning button diagrams are really difficult for me. The fingering. And just making, yeah, just making the sound was really difficult. I remember just sitting there, just I couldn't, couldn't get my lips straight. And my sisters just kind of showed me a little bit, but then they had no idea how to actually show me how to make an embouchure. And I remember you had a few days to choose your instruments, as far as I remember, before you start actually really learning stuff on them. And so I brought the flute home and I was a little disappointed because the case was the right size for me. Like I just wanted something small and saxophones were all taken. 
they already had a drummer that beat me to the pond. And I don't think I, yeah, I think, I guess that would be clarinet, so we're all taken. And so I just remember, <clears throat> I remember getting back to the class and just thinking, okay, what's the next smallest case that's available? And it was just the trumpet. So I grabbed that and I was like, okay, I guess this is it. And uh, it was funny, like I, I took it home and I could get a tone right away. And I was like, okay, this works. And then the three buttons and following the little diagrams, super easy, just black, white, three buttons. <laughs> and that was really easy to me too. And I was just, I was able to get those melodies pretty quick. I didn't know at the time that at that part was the integral part was like the having the ear to hear the melody and then play it and then trying to get my body to do it. I didn't know that was like tricky. So like the e the most difficult parts came easier to you than others. Yeah, like just getting the sound was really easy. I remember I could and a lot of people I I remember right away when I got back and I was able to do what I like just those few days or whatever. I it's blurry now, but I just remember a lot of people were like, Wow, Chuck is really good at this. And I just remember thinking, that's cool that you think I'm cool now. <laughs> So I'll just keep on going. And I actually really, then I started liking, I think I started liking the instrument and liking the sound. I liked the volume. I just remember, and that fit my personality too, was being able to just make a noise that loud. Yeah. <laughs> it, it sounds like it was validating in some ways. Yeah, it totally was. Because I, I don't think I, I had anything that I was specifically that good at. Like it, I was, so I'm always just going to, a middle of the road type guy and all the things that I was doing. I wasn't the fastest runner, but I wasn't the slowest. I wasn't the, I was always a kind of a big, kind of big, heavy set kind of kid. So I was more about strength and then I was about speed and I couldn't skate stuff like my ankles. were Yeah. The trumpet, the trumpet just seemed to me like a, Kind of validating right away, and then I was just getting all those melodies from the books. It was really easy, and those were all the testing. That's what we were tested on is the just getting through these melodies. So I just started racking off all the all the tests like ahead of all the other kids. I was just like, "Oh, okay, I can play that one, so I'll play it." And just getting the once I heard what the melody rhythm was and stuff like that, it was really easy just to. Uh, the melody is it's the sound and so I ended up just getting a hundred percent in grade seven and uh, and then I joined the we're in concert band I remember that was really easy I remember memorizing the parts to so those songs that we were playing and that was another point where I could kind of show off and just do like I, I played my parts with without looking or whatever I hear a lot of, when you're sharing your story, I hear a lot of myself in your story. I close to you. And you and I are probably about the same age. I'm 46. I don't know how old you are. I'm 48. You're 40. We're about the same age. So we're growing up in the same part of the world at about the same time. And it's just, it's interesting how two very similar paths are, we're being being forged right around the same time. And I was 
never, I was, I, with all due respect to my parents, I wasn't raised to be anything special. I wasn't raised to be like the superstar of anything, but I always excelled at trumpet. That was the one thing where I was known as James is the trumpet player. And he, that was the one thing that I did great. And like first chair, all state band and got recognized in front of the whole school. But aside from that, I didn't do anything very spectacularly. So it's just interesting to hear you share your story. I'm like, wow, that's, I'm looking in a mirror here. Yeah, that's awesome. I remember in grade eight, I got a, they had a Manitoba honor band here for Manitobans, but because I'm just so close, I auditioned Hmm. and I ended up, or no, it wasn't grade, it was maybe grade nine, a little bit later anyways, but the, I ended up bumping the first chair that this girl that was, she ended up going to second and went in there this kind of like unknown person from a strange land <laughs> took over the first chair part, just sitting there and all these kids were just like, cause Manitoba had such a, like it was all the same kids that were all getting the first chair spots oh, for like okay. from Winnipeg. Yeah. And so I just kind of leaped in one year and took over first chair. And oh, like, really? Oh, wow. but that, that, that went over well. Yeah. I, I really enjoyed it. I thought, oh, good. The music was cooler. It was way cooler than Kenora concert band. Makes it. Okay, so you moved to Winnipeg around the eighth grade. No, I I just joined that band that one year. Oh, I, I yeah, like from Kenora. Oh, so that was a, quite a drive. Well, yeah, a couple hours, but a lot of commuting goes on. You know, some people even work in Kenora and drive to Winnipeg every day. I think it's crazy. But yeah, no, I was there until I was eighteen. But yeah, it's pretty, it is similar. Like I'm just trying to think of, I was known for other things, but nothing really positive. (laughs) I was known for being really rough. And uh, that was another duality that I enjoyed too, is I was more like a rough kid. Trying to get in trouble and and some fighting and stuff like that. But then I also go play music as well. And I remember enjoying that too. Music can be a fight as well. Music is not intended to be the picture of serenity and music, or of peace. It can often bring out very strong emotions in people, very violent emotions at times, even with the concert band literature or the orchestra. Like the Rite of Spring was premiered, I think, in San Francisco, if I recall correctly, and it, it caused a riot at mm-hmm. its premiere. Because it got people riled up. That's the whole point of music. If it doesn't get people stirred up, then what's the point of it? Thinking of some things that we can talk about. And I came across a video. It's a video interview that you did. And I'm let me preface this part of the dialogue by saying that I'm both a very curious person and also a very ignorant person. So take anything that I say with a grain of salt. But you were talking about your history growing up as, a, as an indigenous person in that part of the mm-hmm. in that part of the world and uh, this is going to come across what i'm going to say is going to come across as crass to people here in 2023 but this is this was the reality in the 1980s but you would excel and people would listen to you saying and, and say something like oh that's pretty good for an indian <laughs> and yeah if i recall correctly that was just part that was just the culture of the time and you just yeah, totally. you, you didn't really think anything of it 
mm-hmm. to, to just to hear myself say those words, it's just so derogatory. But that was the culture of ignorance of what people of a different background and people of a different skin color, ignorant that they could have the same abilities as people of another skin color. You know what I mean? And that's the improvement. (laughs) And that's like a person at the upper edge of kind of enlightenment or whatever you want to call it. You know what I mean? And that's where it was at that time. So it's things have advanced, but it was way worse than that at one time. Like stuff that my my dad had to face. He tells me about going, they could never walk on the main roads uh, when they're walking back to their community, like back to the, the reservation at nighttime, because there were crews of teenagers with weapons going around beating up native people on the way home. So they had, he said they had a lot of trails in the bush and that was how you keep safe when you're walking home. So I never had to face that, but that's, that's kind of, and my mom said when she was in their fifties, there were restaurants that she wasn't allowed to go into in, in Kenora. So there was still, there was, I'm not sure what the, not much for history, but I know, you know, that was pretty commonplace at one point. I actually didn't think that happened in Chora for some reason, but when she told me that, I was like, of course it was happening in a lot of places. Yeah, not just the deep south of America. Okay, so tell us a little bit about, because that's a major psychological barrier to overcome. It's ingrained in your mind that for that, for someone to say that to you, you have to, it's like second nature that I'm inferior to these white people. It's just assumed yeah. in this culture that the white people, they're the ones that play the instruments really well. And then they think, oh, that's pretty good for an Indian. It's just an assumption that people of your ethnicity, your skin color are just inferior. And I'm, this is a completely open-ended question, so you can go how, wherever you want with it. But what was it like to have to, to overcome that and really become something with yourself. I think we either have to face those feelings, like face and really look at our own belief structure. Because I actually, I remember dating this girl in university, fast forward a while, quite a while. And I remember she was, she was indigenous. She's from Pine Ridge and her family was really like from the States. And her family was like involved in a lot of protest stuff from when she was growing up. And I remember we spent some time together and then I guess she started hearing my inner, innermost thinking or whatever. And then she, I remember she just was flat out was like, Chuck, I think you actually might be the most racist person that I've met. (laughs) And I remember just thinking, I just remember thinking like that really took me aback. And at the time, my capacity for self-reflection was not really that high, but it was enough for me to just really take a look at how I was thinking. And I actually, I think in order to survive living in Kenora, I think I actually bought in to that idea that I'm a good Indian and that there's bad Indians and that there's good Indians and I'm a good one. You know what I mean? And and that was a difficult thing to face, but I, I was just like, no, we're like, that separates me. I don't want to be separate 
from my family. I don't want to be, I don't want to separate myself. And I think at that time, I may have been doing that just more internally, probably in my behavior in some ways, the ways that I was looking at the world, my outlook definitely needed some work. And at that time, I, I think I remember doing my best to just try and just let that go and try to see myself, just see reality, accept who I am. I didn't learn too much about residential schools, but I think that's where all that inferiority really gets nailed in various ways. I don't know if you're too familiar with residential schools in Canada, but there's boarding schools in the States. I think that basically the mandate is to, it's it, the goal was assimilation. So basically... I'm sorry to interrupt, but assimilation with what? Society. So that was like the name of uh, assimilation was the name of a government policy towards indigenous people, which is basically bring them into school, cut them off from cultural ties, cut them off from their families, indoctrinate them into Christianity. That was the goal. So all indigenous children across Canada were all put into these schools in all different areas. And, and the, the goal is basically once these kids come out of there, they're not going to think they're indigenous anymore. That was the policy. And I guess at that time, the people of Canada weren't against it. Although I think the majority of Canadians were probably told a certain amount of propaganda to justify these things kind of how the government has worked and when they need to do a goal, they'll just kind of make sure they'll try to get the populace to buy into that goal. But I think there were participants in the whole thing that were, that definitely disagreed with what was going on. So anyways, I think that's where that inferiority really just got brainwashed into a generation or two. I'm a product, a direct product of parents that grew up in residential school. And there's tons of negative consequences. Did you go to a residential school? No, but I do have cousins my age that, that went to residential school in northern Manitoba. So where I was from, all the residential schools were finished at my age. But there were still areas in Canada more remote where residential schools were still finishing. I have cousins that, that endured a lot of abuse up north. I was free going to school in where I'm from. I never, I never really, I never, I don't understand what that feels like to have to go to school or else it's where you're locked in. And that's where that inferiority and it shows itself in a lot of ways in our society right now. I appreciate you sh sharing these things, which are probably difficult to recall. And I hope my, my hope is that in sharing this, it's going to better people's lives in some way. And my apologies to those who, if you're a trumpet player and you tuned into this expecting a lengthy treatise on trumpet pedagogy and how to play your scales, I apologize. It doesn't seem that conversation is going that in that direction. <laughs> but something... Oh, yeah, the C scale. Back to the C scale. That's true. <laughs> We've established there's three buttons, and there's harmonics. Everything else, listen to another podcast. You'll find it. 
<laughs> you're talking about you identified yourself as you considered yourself to be a good Indian versus a bad Indian. Do you think that you viewing yourself in that way, in your mind looking back, do you think that it made you yourself superior to the white people? There was a superiority associated with being a classical. Like at the, up until I was, I got out of university, I was a classical trumpet, and that was my path. So that the whole classical music, whatever you want to call it, like superiority was there and made it. I think I enjoyed the idea that I'm a classical trumpet I think that just so last thing, I think the process of really finding your identity and who you are as an Indigenous person sometimes uh, takes a long time. Like I think it can, for depending on what happened when you're younger and whether you can get through active things that get in the way, like alcoholism, other things that just delay whatever healing needs to take place. And I think... It's everyone's path is different to get to a place where they can just really, where you're just really comfortable with who you are. And, that, and yeah, that's a huge thing. There's also a million other podcasts about that kind of well, bad stuff too. Like connecting with your inner child, medication, all this kind of stuff. Let's put the focus back on music a little bit and talk about the role of music and specifically the trumpet which you found came very easily to you as a child, a seventh grader, still a child in my mind. So you have this one thing that you do really well, but you're also raised in this culture of being basically beat into your head, I'm inferior to others. Tell us about the role music played in overcoming that and finding your identity, not just as an indigenous person, but just as a person, and how music made you just a, a valid, legitimate person, like a person of value in society. I see it a lot. Like when I, I really think about it's, I do, I really believe that if music wasn't there, I don't know how far I would have made it past university or past. I wouldn't have went to university. That's for sure. I'm not sure, so sure I would have lasted too much longer after high school, like into my adulthood. What do you mean by lasted? So grade eight and then grade nine comes, I've got these kind of two duality going on where I'm, I'm hanging out with all my friends, getting into trouble. And I started drinking when I was 15. And then music is this one, it's this other part of my life where I'm going, I'm doing lessons and traveling to different places or in going to band camp and this other stuff. But as universe, as me, my life progressed through high school, drinking, using alcohol became a very, the level of importance of that, like just went, started becoming really imbalanced. And, uh, and music seemed to be this thing that I was clinging on to more, especially with my, the things that, the behaviors associated with alcoholism which I was definitely displaying like right away in grade 10, 11, 12, blackouts, not showing control of my actions when I was drinking and getting into trouble, being brought home by, by police. Just a lot of different things that was, were happening. Actually, 
like I said before, I was never too attached to school, although I was good at it. Like I was good at getting whatever grades and just never, without music, I think school would have just fell by the wayside. And I may have just gotten out of school. I may have just done enough to graduate just to so that I could start partying with my friends. I, when I started going, when it came time for university applications, I, my music teacher was always like, sometimes I showed up to the lessons, like really hung over and he'd be like, so, so good. I'd be like, oh, I'm fine, blah, 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 blah. But I never really was telling him anything telling anybody anything, but he knew that there was something going on. There just, he was always encouraging me, like, Chuck, you're, you have to, if you want to be a trumpet player, which I've already agreed that I wanted to be, then you've got to go to one of these good schools. So there's Western, there's Humber College, the places in Canada that were really good for school. So we applied for those, but in, and I got an addition at Western, and uh, I think I, there was some interest at McGill. So what I did is I basically missed all my deadlines for my university entrance, like for all my applications. I fudged them all. I didn't do the little audition tapes in time. And I remember I was just like, I don't want to go to university. I want to stay in Kimura for one more year. And so I actually sabotaged all my courses that year. I skipped like a, the last two weeks of school before writing exams. And it was just half, like I could have did more <laughs> when I look back. But I was just basically thinking that I was doing enough to drop my average below what is needed to go to university. Yeah, it totally was. But I also would get in a lot of trouble with my mom and my stepdad if I just flat out dropped. Like I couldn't, the concept of just quitting school wasn't really there, but the I sabotaged it so that I would have to take one more year. So that summer, I remember, I, that summer was really rough. I think I was like 17, was going on 18, and I was getting in a lot of trouble in the community. Like in Kenora, I was drinking trouble with my friends. And it was getting worse and worse. And I remember thinking, like, I need to, I remember thinking, wow, I wish I could leave, Kenora. Like, I, I, my mind at the time was thinking, Kenora is a problem. It's not Chuck, <laughs> which is so typical of alcoholism and addiction, is blame, blame your surroundings first before you can just kind of start looking at yourself. The two hearts of the cat. This is all, I was only 17. Having worked in the addictions field for quite a few years now, this is this kind of behaviors that maybe come out for a lot of alcoholics a bit later in life. But I guess I was one of those kind of early onsets, if you want to call it. But anyway, so I, I remember in August, I, I missed all these deadlines. My parents were mad at me, and I was just like, oh, I'm sorry, I forgot. <laughs> But then I remember getting to this point where I was just like, I was just, with my drinking, I was hungover and I remember just thinking, I need to be gone. And then it was like that day or the next day, the trumpet prof from Brandon University, his name was Alan Innes, and his son is James Innes. He was like a really renowned violinist. But he, Brandon at the time, had a top-ranked music school. 
not sure where it is now, but at that time it was like third in Canada. There's McGill and then there's Queens, Western. And he was like, Chuck. And I was like, oh, yeah. And he's like, how, why didn't you finish your application? I was like, I don't know. I forgot. And he's like, you got to finish it. And I was like, why? And he's like, he's like You're, I need trouble players. I need a trouble player. I need you to come to Brandon University. And I was like, my average is pretty low. He's like, how low is it? And I was like, 59. And it has to be 60. And he's like, okay, apply anyways. I'll get you into the school. Don't worry about that. And I remember at the time, I was like, okay, this sounds good. Because I was just thinking I need to get out of town. So that's how I ended up going to Brandon University. <laughs> for, to, for trumpet for a couple of years. Got me out. It got me out of Winnipeg. Like the same stuff happened. And in Brandon with my drinking, honestly. And Brandon is where I met that girl who told me I was racist. Oh, she came to Brandon from a different place, I guess from the States, wherever we met there. I stayed there a couple of years. And then the, the same stuff is happening in Brandon, but then Home Reservation funded me to go to an electronic music school in Vancouver, BC, way on the West Coast. And I figured going there would be, then I started to blame Brandon for why I was having so much growth. But the university, the actual university school, I actually really enjoyed them. I enjoyed all, all the bands. The big band was there. I, I always liked playing big band, all the concert bands. It was really cool, like playing with all these trumpet players, like the guys that are in like their third and fourth year and just kind of hearing their tone and learning about tuning and all that kind of stuff. So, I enjoyed music school. There's a certain level of self-awareness that is not present in your life. And I'm just observing. I'm not criticizing. I'm observing based on what you've said. You're always, every your external surroundings are the problem. If this could improve, then I would improve. But then yeah. you finally realize, I have to change. I have to change better myself rather than wait for such and such outside to happen. Do you recall, was there like a light bulb moment, an aha moment? Was it a gradual process? How did that come about? Because you seem like a pretty well-grounded guy now. Well, thank you. But I'm, yeah, now it's been 20 years, 21 years since I drank or used. So when I sobered up, it was 26. So I did go to Vancouver. I started, that's where I started kind of jamming with bands and that partying. But I really, I, I just loved music. I love playing with my friends and I've definitely was a level playing field where kind of race and all these kind of issues that maybe I was conflicted with never really played a part. Maybe that's, maybe that was the appeal the whole time is music. Like I play well and I communicate well musically with people. That is a form of communication and that's where I definitely would connect with people. You know what I mean? Place you can when you can start hearing your note, your notes across the band, and you're hearing your note in the other in another section, and you're hearing it in another section. So you're trying to tune across the band with you're, yes. you're reaching out beyond yourself to present this art. There's a certain level of teamwork and camaraderie that you have to have in order to be successful, and it's, it's just, you just can't be worried about where somebody grew up or whether their skin is darker than yours. You, you just have to put that aside because you just have a job to do 
And you just have to focus on that. I think that music must have gave me a break from from whatever conflict I was going through. And I see it now in other in in bands. Like I, I just finished playing with this indigenous big band in the States and went to Alaska. It's an amazing band. It's amazing to be with all indigenous musicians. And I just look across, I'm not really trying to analyze anybody or whatever, but I just kind of I'm looking at backgrounds and we all probably have these histories from our own areas that are really painful and really hard to look at. But here we can come and we can all play together and kind of focused on this goal of presenting the music. And all of that stuff, we don't really have to. It gives that break. So that that's probably the role of music for me. It's, I think that's how it might have gotten me through. It's really intense. Because I sobered up when I was 26. So I went to Vancouver and then I ended up using out there. I got into different heavier drugs. And I had to come back. I came to Winnipeg because my family moved here. Otherwise, I wouldn't have chose Winnipeg. And uh, it was a Hail Mary. I left all my belongings. All I had was my trumpet and a garden bag. I left a piano there. I left all my music. You probably know this. I had this box music from university, like, my whole life. And is it like a valuable box? I just left it back. I wish I could have that. I had all my old piano books with the writing in them and all this kind of stuff. Theory books and but I left that all there, and I just came back. I went to treatment, and then that was when I was 24. And two years and three treatments later, I think that's where I could say, finally realized that I'm the problem. <laughs> okay. Better late than never. When it takes, you know, it really does take a bit of just saying, yeah, this is no one's fault. Every time I used alcohol, every time I used drugs, I always had a big, well, I'm doing this because I'm mad at this. And that's what blah, 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 blah. And, it, and it's so tragic that so much damage has to occur before I could just, before I could just say, yeah, I went and used. I have no idea why I did that except for I wanted to. And I didn't feel like thinking anymore. It's a sobering, it's sobering to listen to your story. And I do appreciate you, again, I'm going to say it again, that I really appreciate you opening up about things that are not easy to talk about and probably bring back some unpleasant memories. But at the same time, it's a very positive story because even though you had this, all these experiences, thank goodness that you came to your senses and you just f did have this self-awareness come into your mind and into your soul, say, enough is enough. I don't, I'm not going to be this person anymore. So it's, it's both sad to listen to it, but at the same time, it's a very positive message because it tells people that there, it doesn't matter how low you can go, you can get out of it. If you just have the self-awareness to realize I'm the person that needs to change, not somebody else. Now, I, we're running a bit short on time here, and I, we can't talk forever, unfortunately, although I am immensely enjoying this conversation. But we do have a bit of a time limit here because I have to go pick up my son from school. I want to talk a little bit about your album, Oshki Manito, 
And it's very prominently displayed on the webpage, chuckcopenace.com. Again, I was listening to some interviews on your website, and you were talking about how this album, and maybe there's some albums before it, but it's the purpose, as I understand it, is to bring together indigenous people who have some of the stories, some of the commonalities that you shared in this interview, bring them together. And But that's the level of my understanding. And I was wondering if you could just expound a little bit on that. Tell us about how this project, some maybe some of the other projects that you've had in a similar vein. Tell us about the founding origins, how it's been received thus far. And I just want to hear about this album and what you're up to. Yeah, so this is would be my second recording and my first full-length recording. It's my own band. I made all the... I, there's a couple of covers in there, but I, I wrote, yeah, it's all kind of, it's like my thing. Process of getting to the point of releasing my own recordings was a pretty long one as well. Like I, there's a period in the early 2000 or late 2000s where I didn't play at all. Like I actually got into social work and all this, like other kind of fulfilling, working with homeless people. I worked with them. I worked in the same treatment center that I attended. It was two times. Twice I attended this treatment center, and then I actually went back there when I was a few years sober and worked there for six years. I call it the extended. I took the extended the extended program. Yeah, so all that time, and I also played with a group called Moses Maze, which in Canada was, at the time, this was early 2000s, from the time that I moved to Van- to Winnipeg and for the, until 2004, I played with them, and we traveled all over Canada. Canada played some amazing shows. Montreal Jazz Fest was probably, for me, the pinnacle of being with those guys. But I was always a sideman, just writing the horn lines and helping write the songs. But that was electronic music. Like we, Our band was about emulating electronic music for DJs and house music. That's also what I was doing in Vancouver with my buddies there. And that's stuck with me as the way that I like presenting music is kind of like a fusion with groove music. When I quit Moses Maze, I remember telling myself, I'm not going to play music until I write, until I'm fronting my own band. I didn't want to join any other bands as a sideman. Yeah, so I, I also played with a group called Burnt Project One, which was kind of a fusion between rock and funk. And uh, it was really awesome, led by an awesome musician named David Belager. Will's also an Indigenous fellow. He's a Ghibli like guy. Went to sweat lodges and participated in ceremony. I remember when I played with him, I remember he was like, Chuck, you got to make it to the sweat lodge one of these days. And we were telling him, I was like, yeah, I'll get there. I don't know when. I don't think I was, I think I was just saying that. I didn't really have any intent on going to ceremony at the time. I ended up kind of going through these other stages of and it turned out when it came to starting my own group, I had a lot of fear. Like I just couldn't draw myself to do it. I'm, and I even wanted to stop playing trumpet altogether. I was thought maybe this was all just, uh, maybe this was all just that's as far as it was meant to go. Maybe it's going to be a social worker thing. Along. I eventually got a job working with indigenous kids. And part of that job 
bringing the kids to exposing them to ceremony, but I hadn't really participated myself. I remember we went to a sweat lodge and I looked at the kids and I was like, hey, why don't you guys go in there? And I remember the way that they looked at me, it was just like, they just looked at me like it was that's such a dumb idea. Like, you're not going in there. Why would I go in there if you're not going in there? <laughs> and so I went to a lodge like a couple of days later. I was like, okay, if these kids need me here. It, and still, I didn't think I needed it. But I remember just thinking, if this will help those kids go to the lodge. It's just like, here, okay. Yeah. And so that, when I went to that lodge, I heard one of the songs that I'm presenting on my new recording. It's called The Opening. And I went with a gentleman named David Biden. He sings this song at the beginning of every single sweat. And the words are, Shagwein and Wayarn, Wibin de Gayan, which is basically... The words are basically are referring to spirits that are also by the lodge or that are everywhere. And we're inviting those spirits into the lodge. And the melody is really beautiful. And what ha started happening in those sweat lodges is the form and the meter and this kind of the overall presentation of indigenous melody in the ensuing however many lodges that I went to, which ended up being like, almost one or at least one a week for two years like i just totally got into going to sweat lodges like everyone was bothering me like they bugged me at the lodges they'd be like oh chokes here big sweat hall <laughs> like whatever started happening in those lodges just started changing the way that i yeah music so I, as those melodies started seeping into my consciousness in a way, like I could actually understand them and I could sing them and, and just start started understanding what's going on there. They just started seeping into my the way that I was writing. So I'd sit down with the piano and then I would sing the melody and I would just start playing chords, chords that I enjoyed playing. And I just felt how they locked in together. So on this recording, I have two, two of the first songs that I really connected to in the Sweat Lodge. I'm presenting those as a fusion with kind of funk, jazz, modal, groovy stuff. And I think they worked out really well. Like, I, I really enjoy those two tunes. And on the recording last year, I decided to sing those songs. And so those two songs on the recording are uh, I'm singing and doing the hand drum. And then I play the one trumpet and my band plays them. The band that I have on this recording just awesome. And the guitar player has, has played with me for a really long time. And his name's Victor Lopez, and the sax player, his name's Kyle Wedlake. He's played with me for a long time. And I recorded at a place called Stereo Bus in Winnipeg here. The owner, engineer, producer at Stereo Bus, his name is Paul Yee, played me on three, three of the songs as well. One, two. And he is like a world-class bass player. Like he's a producer right now, and it's almost like he used to be like the first call bass player in Winnipeg for sure. Back in the early 2000s when I met him, I didn't know he knew anything about recording, but he was like the premier. Him and one other guy in Winnipeg were like the top dogs. He's playing. He would measure up to anybody, I would think, as far as his knowledge and his speed, all this kind of stuff really admire him so i'm really happy he played bass i was like paul so you want to play on these songs he's like, sure <laughs> right on so yeah the recording 
So it has those two songs, which I'm really happy to present. I really wanted to show how strong these melodies are. When you're hearing an Indigenous melody with the hand drum, that those songs are being replicated really and passed down orally for who knows how long, you know what I mean? Some of them are newer, some of them are really old, but they're this melodic unit and they have a, a real purpose and a real intent behind them. And melodically, they're really complete. And I really think that's what you're looking for. I think that's what all composers are looking for, are melodies that answer themselves or melodies that can tell a story or convey an emotion. And are strong, just a strong melody. And that's what I think a lot of these, a lot of my people's melodies are, are really good at it. They're just like a really compact presentation of intent. That's what comes through when, when people are hearing the hand drum, the voices, all the beauty. And then the other songs in my recording are from different periods of my life, but they're all can come from my electronic background, my groove background, funk background, really enjoyable. I really like making music that people can, I think, I hope people can connect to and just really get the feeling, get the, get that emotion from and then it's not like my music isn't meant to really challenge. It's just to get that, get the idea across. Never. But yeah, that's what's going on. So now we're going to release it soon and start touring, I think, this year. Thunder Bay, Ontario, I'll be playing at a Red Rock Folk Festival there with a small trio, which should be fun. I'm playing Winnipeg Jazz Festival on June 21st. It'll be a nice nighttime slot, so it'll be good for my band because we're, we like to groove and we like to, we like to have fun. Like my music is really good for festivals and festival stages. Right now, that's kind of what's in the cooker. I think I might do a small tour around Edmonton and Calgary. But every once in a while, I'll get a big invite. Like I played in Guatemala, at Guatemala Jazz Festival a few years back. That was like kind of out of the blue. Amazing lifetime experience <laughs> going to South Central America to play, just to play music. Yeah, every once in a while, I'll get these great opportunities. So I quit my job, so I'm not, I'm going to be working on music full-time going forward. And then I'm also doing a cultural job. I took a job as a cultural coordinator for one of my friends' organizations, which in as itself, like, I mean, I didn't even go to any ceremonies, like, you know, six, seven years ago. I still hadn't gone to ceremony, but it's become such a huge part of my life and my identity. There have been, like, a thousand questions that have come into my mind uh, that avenues of discussion we could pursue. Sadly... We are out of time for this interview. Maybe the stars are aligned where we can do a round two sometime in the future. Maybe after the album has released and Chuck is done with his world tours to Guatemala. Chuck Copanace, chuckcopanace.com. And there's just ways that you can be apprised of the release of the album, Oshki Manitou. And follow him on Facebook, Spotify. He's got some th things that you can listen to samples some of his work on Spotify, YouTube, every, everywhere else that you would listen to music. That's where you, you can find Chuck there. But uh, Chuck, it's been a real pleasure and a real honor to have you on the show. And thanks you to Rich Porter for introducing us. And if you do have s s someone that you think would be a good guest for the show, 
send them my way, jamesdnewcomb.com. And we can, I'll just take it from there. Chuck, thank you so much for being on the show, sharing your story. And it's a very positive story. And I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, James. Very nice to meet you. Well, that is a wrap for this episode of Trumpet Dynamics, telling the story of the trumpet in the words of those who play it. Are you a true listener? Visit TrumpetDynamics.com to learn how you can be notified each time a new episode is published. And if you really like what you hear on this podcast, the best way to support me and the show is to subscribe to my daily email newsletter, where I share what I learn and observe in life in an infotaining way. Many folks have told me they enjoy the emails, and I think you will too. Again, the best way to subscribe to the email newsletter is to visit TrumpetDynamics.com. Thank you for listening to this episode. And we'll be in your earballs soon. Ah!